Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. This is going to be such a really dynamic and exciting episode. So I hope you all are ready out there with your notepad or your cell phone open so you can start taking down book recommendations because there are many in my conversation with Dr. Mario Tello. So today's episode is What's So Queer About Ancient Greek Literature? And I want to play first our new theme song uh, for this Capricorn season um, that was done by my friend Anne-Sophie Anderson. So thank you, Sophie. And then you'll hear a teaser about Mario's approach to what's so queer about ancient Greek literature. And then we'll get right into my interview with him. Okay, I hope you all enjoy. Of course, these models, you know, of male to male relationships that we see in Plato, you know, and that has had a huge influence, you know, that has, in a sense, shaped the history of male homosexuality, does not exhaust the range of possibilities and the range of queer bonds that we can find in antiquity. I would go actually as far as saying that to an extent that model is not that queer. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am so excited to be joined on, we're recording, it's a Friday night here on Long Island, but as you'll hear, my guest is on the West Coast. I am joined by um, Dr. Mario Tello, um, who is a professor of classics at the University of California, Berkeley. So thank you so much. Can I call you Mario? Of course, thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. I always like to give the doctor credit and then, you know, we start to go into the more casual tone, sure. but, you know, and this is also a very unique interview because Mario and I know each other now because um, we're going to be at a conference together. So we'll get into probably all of that because there's a lot of crossing of pathways, but first things first, because this is such a public humanities audience and some know what classics are. Some might think the classics mean Jane Austen or right. even Oscar Wilde, right? Classics in America can mean so many different things. So, you know, how would you describe just what it means to be a professor of classics? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Uh, and uh, by the way, I am in classics, which has just changed its name, but I'm also in comparative literature. So I have a split appointment with uh, classics. And as I said, it just changed its name. So I'm going to tell you which, what is the new name in a minute. Uh, I'm in comparative literature and also in critical theory. So in a sense, my profile 
is the intersection of multiple interests. So classics is usually, uh, I mean, that's the label that is commonly used in uh, an academic context to refer to the study of ancient Greek and Roman literature. And uh, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, your audience uh, would like to be reminded of the fact that classics is strongly connected with the idea of class. That's what it means, right? Um, and of course, that's a very problematic etymological connection in multiple respects. So the field of classics is finally and thankfully, I would say, undergoing a process of self-critique mm -hmm. and uh, self-reconfiguration and the kind of opening itself up, you know, to diversity, to more diversity, um, to more inclusivity, because of course, as we know, we just need to look at buildings uh, in the American South uh, there is a strong connection between Greek and Roman antiquity mm -hmm. and uh, certain ideologies that uh, uh, are problematic, to say the least. So we, just, yeah, sorry, we decided basically to change our name from classics to ancient Greek and Roman studies, mm -hmm. which is also a name that I don't particularly like. And if you like, I can tell you why. Yeah, yeah, why? Why do you not like that name? Well, I don't like it because ancient means to limit the impact of Greek and Roman literature hmm. uh, in the sense that for me, reception is in a sense part of antiquity. You can't really separate the ancient originals, and I put originals in quote from their many, many retellings. So making it about ancient text as opposed to Greek and Roman literature in general, to me sounds like establishing a kind of hierarchy, reinscribing the hierarchy between the original, the real, authentic Greek and Latin version of the myth, for example, as opposed to modern retellings. So it's establishing a kind of historical diachronicity, which uh, for me is strongly entangled with the very idea of hierarchy, as opposed to looking at antiquity and its survival in modernity synchronically within the same, you know, interpretive framework. And of course, my perspective is that of a comparative. So from the perspective of comparative literature, thinking of Greek and Roman literature diachronically is a little problematic. So that's all, yeah. Yeah, so I'm just curious, um, and there's probably gonna be so many texts we mentioned during this interview, just because it's good to right, ground the audience and everyone listening, um, to have books that we recommend, but there was a book that my, um, I guess he would be a classic historian, but he specializes mostly in um, um, ancient Greek and ancient Roman history. And he has 
continue to be such a great mentor. Um, history was my minor and I only took, um, ancient courses. Um, and I really love this book, Not All Dead White Men. He recommended that to me. Yeah. Um, Dr. Belito, I want to shout him out at Kane University um, in North Jersey. But yeah, such like that and the culture of classics I've relied on about classic education in the 19th century. I think that's what it's called. Um, but yeah, there's so many texts right now, it seems, Mario, that are shifting, right? That hierarchy that you talk about, about the hierarchy of class in the classics. Yeah, there is actually um, a recent book by Donna Zuckerberg, published by Harvard, whose title I think is uh, not only dead white man, because she's really talking about how, uh, again, the classics, that is Greek and Roman antiquity, has been appropriated by white supremacists Mm. Um, various uh, uh, groups uh, of pro-Trumpian fans um, by, you know, a lot of uh, um, programmatically misogynistic uh, groups that are or in the internet uh, that use, uh, you know, a certain idea of normativity that they see embodied by antiquity to push forward basically a conservative or reactionary, I should say, agenda. Mm. So for me, the reason that we should keep uh, studying these texts is that uh, their richness allows us to read them be sort of beside, beyond, and against themselves. Yeah. So there is always a possibility of reading against the grain and the very idea of reading against the grain can model, you know, through reading possibilities of, of resistance, of refusal, of rethinking the social. Mm. Yeah, no, and there's actually an anecdote of when I got um, an ancient Greek homoerotic collection. I'm pretty sure it's the one by, yes, Thomas Hubbard is the editor. And guess what? The university that it came from was Liberty University, the most conservative university in the South. And I'm thinking, huh, this is really interesting that they have a text chock full of pederastic connections. And for the audience, pederastia is, um, right, um, boy, male, love, well, yeah, uh, I don't know whether, I mean, I don't want to go into this really, but Tom Abbard has been at the center of a very heated, a very heated controversy uh, at the University of Texas, Austin, which he now left uh, because, uh, you know, let's put it in the most delicate terms because of his broad, or I should say too broad, definition of uh, what uh, mm -hmm. uh, pederastic is. Uh, and uh, um, I think that there is a kind of literal-minded <laughs> interpretation by, by him of, uh, um, you know, male-to-male -male relationships in ancient Greece and 
to an extent, he believes that that model of male to male uh, relationships that we see depicted in Plato, this fundamentally power-based relationship between an adult and uh, a much younger man, that kind of relationship constitutes a model that can or should be applied to our day. Uh, like so it's a type of, sorry, it's a type of, um, um, what would you call it? Not indoctrination, but um, like a civic, a type of civics of modeling or having these men um, uh, teach virtue in a way, right? Or that was yeah, that type of yeah, platonic these idea. These relationships, yeah. As a platonic idea that uh, this homoeroticism is uh, a form of uh, educational, paedetic, you know, uh, uh, upbringing and uh, training mm -hmm. that uh, uh, this is really about the devotion to beauty and intellectual beauty. So basically, uh, Platonism or the forms of uh, erotic Neoplatonism, if you like, um, which, uh, however, you know, uh, sort of hide or try to hide a power-based relationship and uh, and consensual uh, issues. Right, That's what know. my students. I just I taught the symposium this semester and. Every time, I'm sure too, when you teach the symposium or texts that have, right? Well, pederastia is the love of children, but like in the ancient Greek context, doesn't mean exclusively. Right, we're talking about actually adolescence, you know, basically pubescent, you know, young men uh, who, you know, in the gender system of, fifth century Athenian culture were perceived as being closer to this to femininity on the mm -hmm. spectrum of masculinity and femininity. But I also want to say that of course these models you know of male to male relationships that we see in Plato, you know, and that has had a huge influence, you know, that has, in a sense, shaped the history of male homosexuality, does not exhaust the range of possibilities and the range of queer bonds that uh, we can find in antiquity. I would go actually as far as saying that to an extent that model is not that queer. In mm. that model constitutes its form of sexual normativity precisely because those relationships were so strongly codified, right? Yeah. They prescribed a set of roles for the Eromenos, that is the loved one, the younger man, and the Erastes, the older man. But if we start thinking, for example, about the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus in the Iliad, right? Yeah. So we have this great text, you know, 
which uh, is uh, one of the uh, first, or we can say the first text of Western civilization with a character, Achilles, who is in a relationship with Patroclus. Mm. And already in antiquity, you know, people tried to connect these relationships with the pederastic fifth century model that we talked about. But actually that relationship doesn't fit into that model because, uh, you know, Patroclus is actually older than Achilles. But uh, so- uh, But Achilles is supposed to be more in control, right? Yeah, exactly. Achilles is the hero, right? And Patroclus is in a sense, uh, you know, the surrogate of Achilles. In fact, Patroclus, you know, is sent to the battlefield, you know, when Achilles, you know, doesn't want to do it yet with the armor of Achilles. So that model, that power-based model, actually does not apply to Achilles and Patroclus. In fact, there is also someone, James Davidson, in his book, Greek Love. I have it on my bookshelf. I'm actually quoting it right now in my dissertation chapter. He has made the argument that actually that relationship between Achilles and Patroclus is the closest as we get to a modern gay couple in the sense that the roles are very fluid. They are impossible to understand. Uh, we also um, are, uh, you know, used to think, you know, uh, following David Helperin and Foucault to an extent, that those relationships depicted in Plato basically attest to the fact that homosexuality did not exist at the time, that only homosexual acts, only male homosexual practices were recognized as such. Well, actually, if you think about Patroclus and Achilles, you can see that the possibility of, uh, I would say, a homoerotic or a queer subjectivity, that is a way of loving, a way even of being that goes beyond, you know, the sexual practices as such. So the archaic, in a sense, what precedes the fifth century seems to be, I would say, more interesting and more unsettling, more problematic and consequently more queer than those, you know, highly codified, highly uh, prescribed relationships that we know from uh, uh, the fifth century. And, then, and of course, we have to talk about Sappho also, because it's not just male homosexuality, but also female. And in the case of Sappho, the queerness becomes, I would say, the instability becomes even more pronounced because we don't really know much about the context of Sappho's relations with the female uh, object of her love. And we only have so many fragments of her poetry. And wasn't she supposed to be living on the island of Lesbos? Well, yes, that's why the word lesbian comes from what it means. Yeah. Because Sappho lived on the island of Lesbos. 
And uh, for a long time, people um, made up, made, literally made up the argument that she was a school mistress, right? That she had a school on Lesbos where girls, you know, were taught how to be good wives and then they would leave, you know, for an heterosexual marriage. Hmm. But of course, this idea of the school mistress is a pure projection of male stereotypes onto antiquity, because of course, you know, uh, people, especially German scholars of the 19th century who read Sappho could not even conceptualize the idea of female homosexuality. So they, of course, they knew Plato. So they tried to apply the educational model of male homosexuality to Sappho. And so these were not really physical relationships for them. This was a teacher who had a platonic crush yeah. on her female students. So cl clearly that position was a way to desexualize Sappho to, in a sense, erase the very fact of female homosexuality by making it all about, you know, a, a platonic crush, like yeah. an infatuation all based on purely intellectual affinities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... I also do want to, I'm so glad you brought up um, Davidson's book, Greeks and Greek Love, because it's actually one that is available for almost everyone can find it in their public library. It's not a university press. I don't think it's a university press. I think it's a no, popular essentially press. Essentially, that is a book conceived for the general audience. And uh, James Davidson has, has done a great job of... Uh, making, you know, these materials available to an audience of non-specialists and at the same time maintain very high standards of scholarship and also producing a very original argument. Yeah, it's so, so exciting. It's a type of crossover that I um, want to see more and more of because I think, I mean, it does seem like there is, and again, everyone should, I'll talk about, you know, Mario's work soon, but it, I, I do think when it comes to the general public learning about classics, like the two, uh, the name that I would say probably comes to the majority, especially if they're NPR listeners and Terry Gross listeners, they would probably know Mary Beard. Right. She's the most famous classicist in the world. And... Uh... Mary Beard has played a major role in making classics accessible. Um, she has a great little book uh, on, uh, well, uh, now I'm blanking on the title, but it's a little book which sold many, many copies. Um, it's about women, women, right? Yeah, on the yeah. Me Too movement and, uh, and classics. Uh, and she starts brilliantly by talking about that famous scene in the Odyssey where Penelope tells uh, the singer who is singing about uh, 
Odysseus and uh, the Trojan War says, please stop singing that song because Odysseus, my husband, is away and it's too painful for me to listen to that. And Telemachus says to her, mom, that's none of your business. You should not tell the singer what to do. Just go upstairs and go back to your female activities like weaving and so forth. And Mary Beard said, that's the first example of man explaining in the history of Western civilization. Yeah, mansplaining to Penelope. Basically, right, keep weaving mother. and undoing your weaving right. because she's trying to fool the suitors. Right. right. Well, okay. So, were your first texts of ancient Greek literature? Was it Homer? Was that your first exposure to ancient Greek literature? So, I started uh, learning. So, I learned Latin in middle school. So, when I was 10 or 11. Wow. So I read Virgil uh, in translation for the first time. The, not the old Virgil. I said the Aeneid. I read that when I was 11 and 12. Uh, and then I started Greek. I, I started learning Greek in, uh, uh, in my first year of high school. Uh, so 14. Uh, because in Italy, where I, which is where I come from, as you can tell from my accent, uh, there is a, a kind of high school which is called Liceo Classico, which is classical high school, hmm. and uh, Latin and Greek are mandatory subjects. So you are exposed to this material uh, constantly, and uh, it's almost like a boarding school, so I still have nightmares. Yes. <laughs> high school. Oh I no! Wait, was were you boarding? No, I wasn't. Oh, oh. But what what I mean is that we were tested oh. every day. Wow! And by by being tested, I mean being interrogated every day. So it was like uh, you know uh, the battlefield in a sense. And I'm assuming yeah. an intense amount of homework. Very intensive. Yeah. Um, so. That's when I was exposed to Greek for the first time, and uh, I read, uh, actually, we started with prose, so I read the symposium, I remember, for the first time when I was in high school. And of course, in an Italian high school, you know, there was no mention, you know, of the obvious uh, queer implications of that text. That was entirely... Um, uh, erased from conversation. How do you, you know? even erase that? I mean, it's on every page. Well, you basically platonize it by saying these are not uh, really sexual relationships. This is purely platonic. We are mm. talking about, we are not talking about bodies. We are talking about ideas. Mm. You know? It's the soul. It's only well, manly you know, souls that, coming together. Yeah, we know that we, we owe Christianity to Plato in a sense. So in a Catholic country, you know, the teachers, like Italy, the teachers are uh, very, you know, are experts in uh, Christianizing subtly and implicitly, you know, a text as explicit as the symposium. Well, what do they do when they teach you the pornographic poet, is it Catullus? Catullus. Catullus. You would not read, uh, you know, the pornographic poems of Catullus, but you would only read the so-called Carmina Docta, 
So the Carmen Alves is the sophisticated the poems, the longer ones. Uh. So, for example, number 64, which is about the wedding of Peleus and Tethys, the parents of Achilles. Yeah. But then there is also 63, which is Attis, the story of Attis, the uh, priest of Cybele who castrates himself. Uh, so it's really difficult to escape, I would say, queerness when you talk about yeah. in Roman literature. Well, and I'm going to say, too, that right, we're now getting into the sex, what everyone wants to hear. But there's so much sex in the classics. And... Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I mean, from Aristophanes' Lysistrata, which I love teaching, which the phallus is everywhere, and it becomes this part of their, um, I think it was performed during the phallic festivals, or... But yeah, so, uh, well, there is a long controversy, you know, concerning the connection between comedy and these, uh, uh, you know, ceremony that apparently took place at the Great Dionysia, which is at the same festival where... Oh, uh, he's the guy, just so everyone... The phalophoria, that is weird, a weird ceremony in which people, performers would carry a huge phallus as a symbol of fertility. But I want to say that Lysistrata, the phallus is almost like the Lacanian phallus or what uh, Judith Butler calls the lesbian phallus. That is, it's not, it's really about the phallus as a fantasy, as lack, as uh, an entity that is there, but it's not there that is constantly haunted by its own failure and its own absence. Hmm. Sounds like a lot of men's navel-gazing hang-ups. Right, so in that play, you know, uh, actually I've just finished a book on Aristophanes in which I have a reading of Lysistrata and also of that. Oh, wait, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, I guess, well, there is, this is a long controversy because, yeah. you know, you pronounce uh, Greek names according to the Latin pronunciation. And in the, according to the rules of Latin pronunciation, the penultimate syllable is what determines accentuation. So since that A is short, the accent is going to be recessive. So it should be Lysistrata, but people say Lysistrata, but this seems, sounds very opaque. And it's absolutely fine if it does. In any case, I don't believe in any kind of antiquarian, you know, uh, authenticity-seeking gesture. So it doesn't matter how you pronounce it. But it does mean the woman who loosens the arm. Loosens. 
sense. So it's about the loosening, which is actually a very Sapphic concept because, you know, um, Sappho has a, a famous fragment where Eros, right, the, 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 the god of love, is presented as Lusimeles, which is links loosening. Mm. Eros as the fourth, that is so violent. Eros is so violent that it shatters you. It shakes your body and loosens, you know, your limbs. So it's almost like the Delusian body without organs, if you like. Anne Carson, the famous poet, Anne Carson, has a book called Eros, The Bittersweet, um, which is a wonderful, wonderful reflection on Sappho, on Eros, and on Lyric, and I strongly recommend that. It's constantly reprinted. Nice. Yeah, and um, have you ever read the book A Mind of Its Own? No. Oh, you need to. It's called A Mind of Its Own, The History of the Penis by Friedman. Yeah, who also wrote about Oscar Wilde, which kind of makes sense, especially, you know, why I turned to Mario first and we formed this academic friendship is because, you know, Oscar Wilde, Walt Whitman, so many, um, you know, homoerotic queer writers always, they continue to turn to the classics, but specifically oh. the ancient Greek uh, texts. And well, so when you were reading these texts in your classic high school, um, which we have a few in America, but they're very, it's very difficult to find. Latin is taught in, in a good number of private high schools. Yeah. I don't know about Greek. Yeah, I, um, Latin had just gotten out of my curriculum in my public school when I, you know, went in. Um, but, um, you know, I went into Spanish and then we did do a lot. We did French, German, Spanish were wow. our elementary school training. And then we had to specialize in middle school, um, like determine which track you go into. Um, so I went to Spanish. I'm happy I do. I am happy I did that because I speak it a lot. Oh, that's great. I love to be able to be fluent in Spanish, but I'm not. Yeah, well, and now I'm starting to, I even had a dream last night in French, <laughs> even oh, though I wow. don't know, I know French conversationally, but a lot of it was from me cramming French on the airplane, going to Paris for a Whitman week seminar. And I'm like, I need to know how to order in French. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you actually do because in France, they, they don't particularly like hearing English. <laughs> well, and I became friends with so many Parisians and they said, oh yeah, just as long as you try, it's true. As long as you just try in any, I think any country, the language, it's just appreciate. It's a gesture. Yeah, of, it's a gesture, especially, you know, um, if you are a native speaker of English and you're American, um, you don't want to give other people the impression that you embrace what has become a kind of linguistic imperialism. Yeah, are you, so what languages are you conversationally Well, I can, of course, English and Italian. My French is rusty, I would say, but I used to be able to speak French. I used to be fluent. 
when I spend some time in France. Uh, so these are the only three languages that I'm fluent in. Oh, so you're not fluent necessarily in Latin. I've never spoken Latin. And I, I mean, I guess, uh, yes, there are some people who think that spoken Latin is actually the way huh. to learn Latin. Again, I don't believe uh, in these uh, antiquarian reconstructed. Yeah. Well, wait, where would you speak Latin is more my question. I mean, sometimes well, you do hear it in the people, church. Well, exactly. With other people who know Latin. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, we always need to think about the politics mm-hmm. of uh, certain acts of uh, reproduction, reconstruction. And so, for me, the politics of speaking Latin is fundamentally elitist. Mm. So, uh, I mean, we need at least to be aware and wary of that, I would say. So it's not like your whole department at Berkeley is speaking, no one's speaking Latin in the hallway. Oh, no, not at all. And in oh. fact, we, uh, most of our students take courses in translation. So I teach a course for 200 students, which is called Introduction to the Ancient Greeks. And uh, this is a course that uh, enroll a lot of students, uh, which fulfills the the breadth requirement for these students. And these are students who were never exposed to any of these materials before um, and still get excited. And they don't know anything about Greek or Latin, they don't need to learn Greek and Latin, and they look at these texts, you know, with innocent eyes, and consequently they come up with very interesting ideas, um, some ideas which often are surprising, and yeah. uh, they are so surprising and so interesting precisely because the people who formulated them uh, are not uh, sometimes and we are not conditioned by their knowledge of the material. Yeah. And um, I now continue to encourage my students to listen to Audible or um, any type of audiobook performance. There's such an amazing Iliad performance by Alfred Molina. Um, wow. You've heard it? Yeah. Also, okay. I uh, also recommend to the students Alice Oswald Memorial. Oh, so she's, uh, uh, I think, a laureate poet, and she wrote this amazing book called Memorial, which is a remake of the Iliad in which um, the names of heroes who are just mentioned in the poem, but they don't receive much narrative attention, actually Mm -hmm. occupy a central space so the one can through her poetry can have a sense of the monotony of death that Iliad um, conveys and actually she in a sense became Homer herself because she performs and she has memorized and she performs by heart by memory you know these incredible poems so you can see actually that on YouTube, uh, she also has an amazing collection inspired by Sappho and the Odyssey. Uh, so I strongly recommend her work. Wait, and say her name again, please, Mario. Alas, 
A L I C E Oswald. Okay. O S C W A L D. Okay, great. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump on that and get my hands on Memorial, but I want to um, you know, I'll make sure all these texts we're talking about. Um, I'll try to include them in our episode notes for all of you. Oh, but cool. yeah, and I think you're giving me so many ideas. This is why I love, you know doing these interviews because it continues to just expand our knowledge of teaching. I'm thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful to do a um, classics in the 21st century because you could do Madeline Miller's Song of Achilles. Oh, and that's so a very popular book. Yes, that's huge yep. success. She also has another book, which was also a bestseller, Thirsty. Yep. Oh, very and new, so, yeah. Yeah. Yes, my friend, uh, was reading it while I was reading another book. She was reading it next to me in Starbucks. So I um, <laughs> I actually am going to try to manifest having Madeline Miller eventually um, on nice. the podcast. Yes, yes. yes. I, uh, I'll see her Instagram sometime. Uh, but there's also, well, I mean, when did you discover Mary Renault? You know, I am not a big fan. No, don't break my heart. You know, a lot of gay people are, and uh, I I understand why. Um, But uh, I think it's because I read her in high school. That's why. Yeah. I'll remember I read the, um, um, not the Persian boy, the one that's about um, the Minotaur and the Labyrinth. Yeah, but there is no question that she has had a huge impact. Yeah. Oh, the king must die. That's what it's called. Yeah, in making antiquity really a a channel, you know, of uh, um, actually site for queer people to find themselves, where to find themselves. Well, the Persian boy. Oh my God. I loved when I read that. I read that in 12th grade and I was lifeguarding at a gym in my town and I was reading it on my breaks when no one was swimming. Uh, I would just be opening the Persian boy and then like I would go in the sauna and read it. I was very into reading in the sauna back then, but oh, what a, I'm so, but again, I, Mr. Valerio, who I actually I'll shout out because I follow him on Facebook. He was my 12th grade English teacher and he had us read Edith Hamilton's mythology, The King Uh Must Die. Um, Well, we did a lot with Greek tragedy, speaking of Euripides, um, Aristophanes. We did the whole Oristia cycle. Um, Amazing. Yeah, it was wonderful. Um, Oedipus, of course. Um, And... It was so wonderful just to see that queerness presented, but you know, maybe this is, if this is too personal, of course, you don't have to answer Mario, but when you were, yeah, well, I was just going to ask when you were reading these texts in high school, were you gravitating towards the queerness, like saying, oh, this is speaking to my own identity? Well, um, Yes, I would say so. Uh, maybe even in ways uh, uh, of which I was not entirely conscious. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'll tell you that my um, queerness manifested itself, yes, through the contact 
with this text, but in a kind of uh, weird and uh, strange, odd way, in the sense that I was not at the time in high school, I was not very interested in the content of this text, but I was interested in the very, um, in the very complexity of the language. So mm -hmm. Greek and Latin as extremely difficult syntactical constructions. So um, I would spend, you know, a lot of time just reading, translating on my own. So it was, it was a very nerdy interest. You know, it was like a jigsaw puzzle or a crossword. So, and I see that as actually an expression of queerness. Oh, in yeah. a sense, you know, I was inside, you know, what the- You were a queer aesthete. <laughs> yeah. Wild I mean, I was inside, nerding out, you know, being by myself. So in a sense, it's a fairy performance of the antisocial uh, theory of, of, of queerness that Lee Edelman no wonder, no wonder, Mario, you're so invested in psychoanalysis. And I have Absolutely. to mention, he, you provide such a really intriguing intersection between, of course, Sigmund Freud, that ever, um, you know, specter of psychoanalysis, and um, Jacques Derrida um, in your, well, actually, you have a few in uh, your new book, Archive Feelings. Um, Right. I think you also mentioned Lacan, uh, Deleuze, uh, Zizek. I mean, it's just incredible how you gravitate towards all of these thinkers. Well, yeah, in a sense, we can say that we live in post-theoretical time. Uh, there are still giants, you know. <laughs> You know of theory in our world and i don't want to mention any names because there are you know a lot many uh but uh, you know we are not in the 70s or the 80s anymore mm -hmm. and, and it's hard to sell texts like them too yeah and we when these people you mentioned have built up the humanities they are uh, the humanities in America, I would say, because you know there are other countries where the humanities have a strongly anti-theoretical orientation. And so in a sense, you know, whenever we write, you know, academic prose and we want to make uh, ambitious, wide-ranging arguments, we have to come to terms with these people and the tendency is to basically, you know, choose an approach, right? And think that, uh, yes, of course, Lacan, you read Lacan, he says horrible things about Freud. So uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis and Freudian psychoanalysis, in some respects, are on opposite sides. And Derrida and Deleuze seem to be on opposite sides. I mean, Derridian, uh, the, the, the Redian evaluation of negativity as opposed to what is usually, you know, looked at as Deleuzean vitalism. Well, for me, you know, what we can do now through the practice of reading, for reading literature, is to see possibilities of dialogue, mm. to see more areas of porosity 
of dialogue. So what I try to do in, uh, in the book is not just to theorize the archive and through the archive theorize the experience of tragedy, but also to work with I would, what I would call the theoretical archive, which is all these people that you mentioned that constitute an archive, obviously. They are, have been turned into a kind of synchronic you know, um, a repository of ideas and and see whether we can actually establish you know deep connections uh, beyond their apparent differences because of course critical theory is all about uh, you know blurring boundaries and also problematizing the very idea of the boundary which does intersecting not really... these thinkers exactly. and also you're not just mapping Right, it would be very different if you were saying, I'm going to read Greek tragedy. Like, okay, we'll take- um, Like a Latinian reading, for example. Yeah, yes, or... exactly. Like you're not saying, I'm going to read Euripides's Medea and just see what Lacanian, what Lacan does for these characters. Right. And I'm gonna continue to just use Lacanian. Um, Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, oh my goodness, my Zoom was like, <laughs> yeah, I was frozen for such a long time. Okay, sorry. I think, oh, we're still recording. Good, good, good. So you're okay. gonna, you're gonna edit. Oh, it I'll out. edit it out. Don't worry. <laughs> That'll be interesting. Um, but yeah, okay, so as we were saying, um, it's not like you're just mapping Lacanian theory onto Medea and like seeing all her motivations through his own theory, which would be something that had been done in the past, right? Like that's, it's kind yeah, of like when I, mechanical, yeah. Wait, say it again. It's pretty mechanical. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's kind of like yeah. when, um, a lot of my gravitations towards Sigmund Freud. I'd have to say, I think Freud is probably my favorite in terms of the writing. Freud is so provocative and queer, very queer. Um, the Wolfman case, um, I wrote about that before. And there's so much about narcissism with Freud. And I actually talk about that with the fall of the House of Usher. I'm presenting that in April at a Poe oh, conference. Yeah. And Freud, I think is just really... Um, experimental. And that's why I like his writing. But yeah, it's all of the Freud and queer, Freud and homosexual readings were really done in the 1970s, 80s. And, you know, they mapped on his ideas to try to find the queer character through Freud, which I yeah, think exactly. is a very different project. Yeah, no, I'm not interested, not really in psychoanalyzing the characters uh, in my book on tragedy. I'm more interested in aesthetics, or I would say in meta aesthetics, in how we can uh, see possibilities of affective engagement mm. uh, as stemming from form. From poetic form. Wait, so what so, is meta aesthetics, Mario? Well, 
Okay, the problem is how do we uh, approach tragedy? Okay. What kind of feelings does tragedy produce? Okay. Mm. And of course, there is a long history of theorization on what the experience of the tragic is or is about. And of course, the most influential uh, among these theorizations is Aristotle, who in the poetics theorizes catharsis, which mm -hmm. is you know, a word we're all familiar with, right? Uh, oh, this is very cathartic. This is a positive word, right? It means liberating yourself from some kind of emotional burden. Yeah, and literally like throwing up emotion. Yeah, exactly. To purge. Catharsis really means purification, purging, something like that. It means yeah. purgation. So for Aristotle, that's basically what tragedy is about. That is, we like to watch it because, you know, there is a kind of homeopathic dynamic that, takes place there so you see people suffering you know you feel some pity or fear as a result of that and the consequences by the end of the show you can really you know eliminate the excessive emotion that uh, your soul was filled with as a result of these encounter with similar experiences. So that's basically the idea of uh, uh, the aesthetics of tragedy that to an extent is still dominant. Yeah, it sounds very yeah. similar. Oh, I was just gonna say there was a book, I think it's a few years old that um, argued about how Greek tragedy is being used for those with PTSD. Absolutely, um, yes. Yeah. And in fact, during the pandemic, the Oedipus Project, and some of your of our listeners may be familiar with this, these are productions of tragedy of Oedipus, of Antigone, and other plays with an amazing cast, including Francis McDormand and Oscar Isaac. Wow. Um, and actually, these projects was featured, I think, in the New Yorker or in the New York Times. And uh, the headline was, oh, can tragedy help us during the pandemic? Mm. So basically the idea of healing, the idea of getting over your excessive you know, emotions that are bad for your soul if there is too much of them. So I actually develop a theoretical model that is anti-cathartic. Huh. What I'm trying to argue actually is that the way, the reason that we are attracted to tragedy is that we can actually feel the pleasure of being stuck. That it's not about, you know, moving on. It's not about being purified, mm -hmm. but actually finding a space in which it is okay to dwell, to linger, on your excessive emotion. Hmm. And I use Freud and his idea of the dev drive to basically uh, build up 
what I call an anti-cathartic model of tragedy. And so I use the word meta-aesthetics because, uh, you know, I use the text themselves to argue for this possibility of uh, reception, of aesthetic reception of tragedy. Because we don't know how people reacted, you know, in the fifth century. And of course, I don't believe that it's possible to uh, make speculations about an audience as a unified category. You know, I believe in the fact that every audience member uh, reacts differently, but mm -hmm. I want to make a space for those of us who enjoy tragedy, not because it liberates us from our, you know, ugly feelings, but because it gives us an opportunity to experience those feelings and uh, live with them, you know, not just cope with them, but also, you know, as I said, linger on them. Yeah. No, I love this idea. I mean, this is why, you know, your book, Archive Feelings, A Theory of Greek Tragedy, right? You've laid out your theory. And also there's this really gripping headline to bring the reader in, which is how you question if, you know, readers are taking pleasure in ancient Greek tragedy despite the unsettling content? Like, are they reading Greek tragedy and they don't care that it's so upsetting? Or are they reading it because they actually have almost this fetish, cystic desire to read that unsettling content? I think that's a really provocative, um, you know, claim. It's an exciting claim. It's, yeah, really interesting yeah, to think I mean, about. There is something quintessentially normative about catharsis. Hmm. It's about, you know, uh, establishing really what one should feel and also establishing the boundaries of what is a legitimate emotion or uh, the degree to which emotion, an emotion is legitimate and when it becomes illegitimate. So it's really establishing a hierarchy of feeling. Yeah. And for me, tragedy is the opposite of a hierarchy of feeling. I mean, the very fact that the mainstream venues like the New Yorker or the New York, or the New York Times, you know, present, you know, the um, tragedy as a place for catharsis for me, is a demonstration that there is the need for a more radical take on it. Mm -hmm. Well, and so you really are doing what would be considered affect studies too, like the study of emotion. It sounds like you're, you know, the work that you really do gravitate towards um, is a type of queer affect, which is why yeah. I love Sarah Ahmed's queer yeah. phenomenology. Also, Actually, Lauren yes. Berlan, I Lauren would say, Berlan. Lauren Berlan, mm -hmm. Lee Edelman. So. Wait, there is so much more to come in this interview, but I have to keep these interviews around an hour. So any extra content from now on heads right on over to our Patreon. So head on over to patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom 
and just become a bookworm member, $5 a month, and you will hear the rest of my interview with Mario Tello. And you also unlock every other unedited interview, including Robert Jones Jr. and Aaron Hamburger, and all of the rest to come. So also you'll find on our Patreon site, Zoom video versions that come out the Friday after the audio comes out. So if you become an Ivory Tower member, which is 15 a month, you unlock all of our Zoom videos and you get exclusive Ivory Tower Boiler Room merchandise every three months. So I hope you'll join us on Patreon. It's really exciting to open that up to all of you. And soon, Mary will have some true crime and academia content. So look out for that. And we actually have two events coming up. So on February 6th at 5 p.m., we have our Instagram Live Book Club. We here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room are reading The Death of Jane Lawrence by Caitlin Starling. So make sure you get your hands on The Death of Jane Lawrence and join us on our Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room to talk about it on January 6th. I'm sorry, February 6th. Um, and then on February 12th, we have our first in-person event since the summer. And we are going to be sharing space with Pen and Brush, which is located in the Flatiron District of Manhattan. And follow our social media, Facebook. We now have a business page, so please like it. Um, and follow us on our Facebook page, Ivory Tower Boiler Room, Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. And like I said, we have an Instagram. We also have a TikTok. Um, so you will find all the information about how to RSVP on our website as well, ivorytowerboilerroom.com. And we are doing an open mic poetry night with pen and brush. There's going to be tea and wine. And it's also the closing night of Deborah Jack. Um, her exhibit at Pen and Brush. So that'll be really special. And she's going to conclude the evening by reading some of her own poetry. So I want to thank the team. I want to thank, well, first I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director. I want to thank Mary DePippi, my chief contributor, Jaron Usta, the marketing director. And soon, next week, I'll announce the two names of our new podcast interns. Very exciting. And also thanks to Anne-Sophie Anderson for Capricorn. And on that note, let's hear Anne-Sophie Anderson's Capricorn to play us out. Bye, everyone. <laughs>